You are listening to episode 57, part one of our conversation with Dr. Glenn Griffin, Associate Professor of Advertising at the University of Colorado in Boulder. This episode is brought to you by 120 Water Audit. Hi, this is Ryan Romero, Associate Professor of Practice at University of Texas at Austin, Stan Richards School of Advertising and Public Relations, and Bag of Meat. (laughs) This is a podcast that is demonstrating the value of communication in the water sector. It's Water in Real Life with my friends, the H2 duo, Stephanie Zavala and Ariane Shipley. Each year, thousands of hours are spent pulling together the right data to execute drinking water programs. 120 Water Audit software and testing kits are transforming how government agencies and municipalities manage these drinking water programs. Cities like Pittsburgh, Loveland, Colorado, Kenosha, Wisconsin, and Fort Wayne, Indiana use 120 Water Audit's platform to execute their lead service line replacement, lead and copper compliance, customer request, and other drinking water programs. Our software and kits streamline your water quality testing programs, centralizing your data so that it's easier for you to meet regulatory reporting requirements and communicate with your customers. Learn more or schedule a free demo at 120wateraudit.com. Creativity isn't magic. That superstition around it divides people. And everything we know about science, everything we've learned through research tells us that every human being with a normally functioning brain is a creative being. Okay, Water Nerd Nation, we decided to split up this conversation we had with Dr. Glenn Griffin because it felt like there were two distinct conversations happening in one, and we didn't want to overwhelm you with uh, some subject matter that you probably don't think about on the day-to-day. So in this first part of the conversation, we talk at length about the creative process, and this is why I feel it's so important for all of you to really listen and marinate and think about your own creative process because... I first learned about all this when I was still a public educator and communicator working for a utility. And when you're in that kind of role where you wear a ton of different hats, I found out how important it was for me to know and own my creative process because it helped me plan better and manage my calendar and my day, my month, my year better. And I knew that when it came time to create all the content for one of our publications that I couldn't be in the office and I had to communicate that to my boss. You know, maybe that meant sometimes you'd find me outside by the community garden. Maybe that meant I was at a local coffee shop, but my brain needed to not be at my desk where I would be distracted by the day to day. And it meant I knew that I had to spread my day out across more than eight hours because I was going to have to take more breaks. And I knew that I would be rolling around with my giant post-its and my marker caddy because, yeah, that's that's what I needed. So people in water wear so many hats. And when you're tasked with communicating issues surrounding, you know, the most vital element to existence, it's fundamental to know what gives your brain the space you need to create the ideas that are going to make the most impact. Because ultimately, as educators and communicators in this space, that's the end goal. And I can't think of anyone I would rather nerd out about the creative process with than Dr. Griffin. He has taught courses in creativity and portfolio development for more than 20 years and is also an author and researcher. 
His research focused primarily on the subject of advertising creativity has appeared in the Journal of Advertising, Psychology and Marketing, the Journal of Interactive Advertising, and the Journal of Advertising Education, among other publications. Dr. Griffin has also written for Campaign and How Magazines, and in September 2010, he co-authored a book with Deborah Morrison called The Creative Process Illustrated, How Advertising's Big Ideas Are Born. It was published and became a top 10 best-selling book on advertising creativity. Dr. Griffin's students' work has been featured in both national and international press, including Advertising Age, Adweek Archive, and CMYK magazines, and recognized by the One Club, the Art Directors Club, and the Clio Awards, among other organizations. In 2015, he was honored to receive the Donald G. Heilman Educator of the Year Award from the American Advertising Federation's 7th District. So without further ado, let's get to the show. Well, we are incredibly excited to be here with Glenn Griffin. Um, Glenn Griffin. The Glenn Griffin, yes, all the way from Colorado. Uh, We have been super fans since Mm -hmm. we first saw him present back in, geez, I don't... 2014? 2014-ish. Somewhere around there. Our CPC group, Mm -hmm. he um, presented, and it was... Um, TCU's Certified Public Communicators. Yeah, I can't say enough about that. And I know you are a seasoned presenter in in Texas and especially yeah. with, with TCU. And we share friends in Laura Bright and uh, Jackie Lambier. So we're so excited to have you with us. <clears throat> well, thank you. I'm glad to be with you guys. Um, so we were... Obviously, I just said, uh, introduced you through the, the TCU CPC program. And... Um, you talk about, or you spoke about, when we first saw you, create creativity. And that's definitely one of mm. my favorite subjects. But that's also a word that gets thrown around a lot. So a uh, couple questions for you. <laughs> uh, how do you define creativity? Is it innate or can it be learned? And what are some of the biggest perceptions about, misperceptions, thank you, about creativity? Well, that's a great question that I get a lot. And I think the best way to, to start is that creativity isn't magic. Um, people, people think it's magic. And, and, and that, that superstition around it sort of um, divides people along pretty clear lines where some people say, well, I'm a creative person. And some people say, I'm not. Mm-hmm. And everything we know about science, everything we've learned through research tells us that every human being with a normally functioning brain is a creative being. Mm-hmm. Um, now, do I think that some people may have a knack for creative thinking as opposed to others for whom it's a little more work? Yeah. Sure. Um, <clears throat> but by the same token, since creativity is just problem solving, it's a particular type of problem solving, I'm a big believer that it can be taught. Um, it's just that some people will come to that teaching with more of an inclination toward it and some people may struggle a little more but I, I definitely think that we're all creative people and I think that we just have to get over some of this supernatural association yeah. with creativity as some form of magic you're right it re- it's it kind of really like is. me in math I'll learn it but <laughs> <laughs> I ain't inclined to go for it and it and it's I can add this too you know I, I think that our schools do us a disservice by Focusing on linear thinking, which basically thinking that's just rooted in logic and prior experience. And um, 
the type of thinking most often associated with creativity is lateral thinking, which is basically thinking correctly about a problem before you try to solve it. And mm -hmm. something I do in class with my students in advertising, um, I'll give them this word problem. And the word problem reads, it takes three men two hours to dig half a hole. How long will it take the men to finish digging the hole? And half the class will automatically start doing math. Yeah. And the, the problem with the problem is that it's not a problem. <laughs> I um, just started drawing a hole in two yeah, minutes. Yeah, <laughs> you, it, it sounds like a word problem from fourth grade in math class, but there's no such thing as half a hole. <laughs> and, and so if you show me half a hole, I'll show you a hole. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but that's one of the issues, you know, with, I mean, with have linear Have you seen thinking. my holes, Glenn? Yeah. <laughs> so, so linear thinking is all about um, making assumptions and letting our brain run ahead of us when we shouldn't. Um, and so I think it's important to stop and don't let your brain run ahead of you and think correctly about problems. And, and another aspect of creativity that I think gets lost in the definition with a lot of people is that creativity is purpose driven. Mm. Um, it, according to the scientific definition of creativity, creative ideas have to be useful ideas and they have to be useful to more than just one person. Um, and I really believe that creativity in that way pushes humanity forward and we all benefit from creative ideas in that way. And so, um, unfortunately, singing in the shower is not creativity, it's, <laughs> it's self-expression. Um, and, and that's an important distinction to make that everything that's weird or different is not necessarily creative. Mm. Ooh, I, like that. I didn't know that I could like cre creativity any more than I do, but I think you just made me, I just, I love it even more. So that's, that's awesome. Um, outside of creativity, we're also super nerds when it comes to the neuroscience behind the incredible power of story. So nerd out with us a little bit and talk about the metacognitive science behind creativity and problem solving. Well, that's my pleasure to nerd out <laughs> because I love that topic. Um, I love the topic of, of metacognition. It's a concept from developmental psychology, um, and it was developed by a guy named John Flavel back in the 70s. Okay. And it's basically the notion that since we are all creative people and we're all cognitive beings, um, we spend our whole lives learning about our own brains, learning about our own minds. And what we do with that knowledge, like when we learn things about how we think or how we best develop ideas, what conditions must be present, that kind of thing, um, we take that knowledge and we use it to make our minds work better or to work more efficiently. Mm -hmm. And so um, people, you know, can certainly understand that if you're paid to think for a living and paid to develop ideas, then metacognition is going to be huge for you, right? Because yeah. you're going to have to know how to put your brain in gear and put it in, right. in the right, on the right settings, if you will, so that you can be as productive and successful with your thinking as possible. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for people who are paid to think, that's gigantic, right? Mm -hmm. that's a advantage. Yeah. And knowing when and knowing when that time is, I never in my entire life thought that my most productive, creative mind would be at four o'clock in the morning. I think I don't think my mom believes me 
to this day because I used to be the kid that she would be afraid of. If I had an 8 a.m. class in college, she would be terrified that I would just miss it all the time. But yeah. that's just that's when I'm the freshest. When when if it's two o'clock in the morning, I'm I'm done. I'm kaput. But just knowing how to put those tools and when your brain is at its most high productivity too. So I I love to talk about science and neuroscience as much as I can when we're talking about things like story and creativity because so many times in our industry those are seen as soft skills where I know that's kind of just like a semantics thing but to me it's um to me there's enough legit science behind it to where it's a I don't know if the reverse of a soft skill is a hard skill I think it's an essential skill so I'm always game to talk to people about the science behind what we do yeah, and it's, you know, it, it's, it's a sophisticated term, but it's so universal. Yeah. Um, when, I, when I introduce the subject to my students, I basically use the example of how they study for a test. Usually in a classroom, about half of the students will say that when they're studying for a test, they have to study in a quiet environment. They have to have no, dis no disruptions, no distractions, and many of them choose to study in the library for that reason. And then the other half of the class says, oh man, no, I have to be listening to music. I have to have some other stimulation, you know, to get my brain um, focused and all that kind of stuff. And so I use that as an example right there of, you know, how they've learned about themselves and how they've put that learning into application. Oh, yeah. um, and, and it's based on successes and failures, because if they, if they have success studying that way for a test, they're going to keep doing it no matter which way that they approach it. Yeah. And we try and talk about that too. when when we talk to people about brainstorming and, and creativity and to just allow yourself the permission to get out of the office. Mm -hmm. uh, I know when we had um, some publications that we had to work on from both a kind of laying it out and, and writing for it, you know, I had to be upfront with our boss and say, you're not going to see me around for a bit because I cannot be in this in this environment to think in that way. So giving yourself the permission to get out and get outside of that standard office situation mm -hmm. to get that creativity going. So. Yeah, and we had to like actually um, block it off on in our calendar, you know, an hour or two, you know, whenever we can to give ourselves that time to think yeah. and yeah. to brainstorm, but it had to be on our calendar. Otherwise we would just blow right through the day and be like, we never even got around to thinking about that. It's easy to do. It's so, easy to do. Yeah, I found out that I love the, the deadline, that pressure of having to come up with an idea like that. And so even in the office, to, like, to this day, even if it's only an hour, um, just knowing that I only have an hour to think how I'm going to get through this and get to that other side and find a solution, it really like drives me. And so we'll do every idea. It's just like throwing spaghetti on a wall as fast as you can. It's yeah. so fun and <laughs> see what sticks. So one of the things that uh, really made, yeah, it is messy. One of the things that I really loved about when we, when we first met you and learned more about your work was a book that you co-authored called the creative process illustrated. Yes. And it has become one that is come to be I go to pretty often for inspiration and encouragement. In fact, we have some letters that we made in our office that say create that have pictures from that book on it because it's just, it 
it really was an impactful book mm-hmm. for me. So explain to us what the creative process is and the research that you did with advertising professionals to write that book. Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for the kind words. Um, that means a lot to hear that when people respond to the book and, and are inspired by it. That was our whole, you know, a big purpose for writing it. Um, it's funny because it didn't start out as a book. Um, it started out as just a research project that professors are known to do. And uh, um, so my colleague, Deborah Morrison, who's at the University of Oregon now, um, she and I set out on this project. And um, I, I think the biggest takeaway from our study is that everyone's creative process is both similar and unique mm-hmm. um, in different ways. Um, you know, everybody gets frustrated. Everybody fears that they'll run out of good ideas one day. Um, and, and I'm talking here about the group of people that we studied, the creative professionals in advertising. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some people may use a specific kind of pen when they write, or others may prefer a particular type of physical workspace. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, the evolution of the project was really interesting because it started out as in-depth interviews. We were just going to interview you know, as many people as we could to try to get a representative sample about their process and have them talk to us about it. And then when we started reading through our first interviews and sort of analyzing what we were doing ourselves, we had the idea of maybe asking our subjects to visualize their process in addition to talking to us about it, because I've watched enough episodes of Law and Order <laughs> to know that um, that's, a, that's a technique, right? Is yeah. when, like, when small children can't talk about a traumatic experience, sometimes they can draw it rather yeah. than talk about it. And I think even with adults, sometimes language fails us when we're talking about something as ethereal as creativity, right? Mm-hmm. So... Um, so we started out, you know, as as just a research project. And then after we'd done a few interviews and we collected a few drawings, we were stunned by what the drawings showed us, um, in addition to the interviews as sort of a supplement. Mm -hmm. And, um, the drawings were really what changed everything in terms of changing it from a research project to a book because a publisher saw the drawings and was like, this is amazing. This should be a coffee table book, you know, that kind of so, uh, so we were fortunate that the drawings led a, lent a different dimension to the work. I, it's definitely a coffee table, but it's beautiful. <laughs> I love sometimes when I just need to get inspired, I'll pull it off our, I'm looking at it right now, I'll pull it off our bookshelf and just uh, thumb through it. And I don't know if I, if I told you, but we actually interviewed one of the advertisers in that book, Ryan Romero, who's actually at the UT Austin now. And yeah. uh, so it you made that connection as mm-hmm. well because one of his uh, his drawing actually resonated with me because he didn't draw anything. It was it was like a manifesto written, and I, for me, I get stressed out at the idea of doodling because I don't consider myself to be a doodler. She's my yeah. chief doodle officer over here, yeah. and so that that resonated with me that it was all written. So definitely made that connection. But it's a beautiful book. I love it. But even when someone wrote rather than drew, um, mm-hmm. sometimes what they wrote was nothing we would have captured in an interview. Oh, right. yeah. Right. So, so it was still an outlet, I think, to, to capture things that we wouldn't get in a traditional sit-down interview. And, you really and, got a taste of their personality yeah. and everything. It was so cool. I mean, it was so validating for someone who's kind of, at the time especially, it was like new to um, – 
this whole thing of creativity and allowing myself to think that I could be, you know, in this field of communication and marketing. Um, and so it was so cool to see some of these pictures and really like resonate with them. They, they're eating pizza too. And they're having like <laughs> hot shower moments and they're, I mean, dealing with kids, yeah. they're yeah. dealing with kids and all the crazy, you know, things that I'm like, doing at the same time to finally get to that idea or whatever or thinking that their ideas are terrible and that they're never going to have another good one and, and, I and know these are people in these high level say, positions yeah, so. let's define who these people are yeah these are, you know <laughs> the cream of the crop you pick this is yeah the top dogs of advertising and marketing I mean, <laughs> my yeah goodness. all all really talented people um at different stages in their careers some mm -hmm. of them were people working on big brands at big agencies and then some of them were like elder statesmen who are household names yeah like the man who co-wrote just do it for Nike is in the book yeah and we right. had some people who had only been working two or three years right. um, yeah. but had already done some award-winning stuff so well as much as we love those illustrations that came out of it um, the six dimensions were fascinating can you walk us through those six dimensions and a key takeaway for each one? Sure. Um, so I'll, I'll try to briefly define each one because, you know, a list of six sure. could get wordy in a, yeah. in a second. Um, but we basically developed the dimensions uh, as sort of a supplement at the end of the book because after a couple hundred interviews and, and analyzing all those visualizations, we really felt we had a pretty solid understanding of how the creative process worked in advertising. and. Um, in many cases, that understanding transfers to creativity in pretty much any discipline, which is a great feature of the book um, because we, we thought we were studying one thing, but we learned about the concept in much broader terms as well. So yeah. um, the first dimension that we talk about in the book is, is called identity. And we constructed under that heading five distinct personality profiles, if you will, that sort of describe the different perspectives that creative professionals approach their work from. Um, for example, some people draw inspiration from everything around them, um, from eating pizza or taking a nap <laughs> or, you know, leaving the office for an hour, um, and, and particularly stuff outside their work environment. And we call those people explorers because <clears throat> everything is fodder for a creative idea potentially. So they pay attention, they're very observant, they keep journals and, you know, notebooks. <clears throat> Others, on the other hand, um, oh, I, I see that Stephanie might be one of <laughs> um, Other people really enjoy or might even prefer developing creative ideas as part of a team, and we call them collaborators mm -hmm. because a, a startling number of people we talked to were um, very much about their team. And, and one person even told us, I don't even feel like I have my own brain anymore. I feel like my brain is connected to my teammates. Yeah. And my yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that happens. And it, when it happens, it's beautiful, right? So um, then we had people who were super protective and, you know, reticent about sharing their process with us, almost as if it was something fragile that might break if they told somebody mm. what it was about. And we called them believers because it was almost like a religious fervor about their process, but also something that maybe they felt embarrassed or sort of sensitized about sharing. Um, and then, you know, there were a couple of other perspectives in there too. Um, 
But the big takeaway from the identity dimension is that your personality sort of influences the way your creative process looks. Um, And I think, you know, you wouldn't be a collaborator if you didn't have some personality characteristics that lent itself to that. Mm -hmm. And you probably wouldn't be a believer if, if some part of you wasn't a little more guarded and shy. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I think that identity was the the foremost thing we learned in terms of, of personality variables and how they interface with creativity. The next dimension we talk about in the book is experience and This is probably fairly self-explanatory, but it's basically the idea that the more experience one has with his or her process, the more confident that person will be with good ideas or will be that good ideas are gonna flow and that they're within reach. And also we found that people with more experience tended to be very generous with others um, in terms of mentoring and helping people Mm -hmm. um, develop their process. And on the flip side, however, we saw also that experience could make people, I don't want to say pessimistic, but maybe a little more realistic about outcomes. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that, you know, if you work in any type of job for a while, you sort of begin to understand how things work and how difficult something's going to be versus how simple it might be based on your experience. And so, um, you know, there's people with more experience tended to be able to anticipate more about what the process would look like given a particular problem or a particular assignment. Um, And there's a lot of comfort that comes with experience that younger, less experienced creatives can look forward to. I think, I think that was one thing we learned. Um, So the takeaway would be, I think that creativity doesn't get easier, but it can feel more comfortable over time, like a sweater or a shoe. Oh, wear it, you know, um, We also looked at rhythm um, as a dimension. Um, Some creative professionals find their rhythm by following the same set of steps pretty much every time, given whatever the assignment is or whatever the problem is. Um, And then some people don't like that idea at all, and they sort of wait for ideas to flow without any script or plan. Um, In other words, you know, the process can be more regimented for some, and it can be more organic for others. we actually talked to people who said that they sometimes just sit and wait for an idea to hit them. (laughs) And to someone like me, that sounds crazy because I can't (laughs) plan that. Yeah. Um, But, but different people come at it different ways. And so that rhythm is set by your, your sort of preference for structure versus your preference for things to happen more organically or naturally. Um, Values was an, a dimension that we looked at. Um, These are some of the guiding principles for being creative that I think people sort of adopt as a result of working professionally in a creative field. Um, One value is that quality ideas come from great great quantities of ideas. Um, Quality follows quantity. Um, Your first idea is not your best idea. Um, (laughs) Your your best idea is somewhere in a stack of 900, right? It's not the first one. Um, Being curious and asking questions is a value. Um, rebellion is part of the creative soul. Um, that was something that was a theme that we saw over and over again. Um, clients don't have to be the enemy. They can be partners. That was something we heard a lot from creatives and that goes against the conventional wisdom about creative people in our field anyway, that they view clients as the bad guy or somebody who tries to squelch their creativity. Yeah. We found that, you know, these very successful people that we talked about or talked with in our book, 
um, they didn't view clients that way. They viewed it as a partnership and an opportunity to collaborate. So, um, so, so being a creative professional doesn't mean uh, <clears throat> viewing uh, the client as an enemy. And it really means forming a sense of how to do things the right way. Um, and so a lot of those little snippets that I shared are uh, parts of that. Um, we also talked about rituals in the book um, as a dimension of the process. And, you know, rituals are super idiosyncratic. Um, they, you know, we, we heard from people, for example, that breaking up the creative process with other activities, mm -hmm. sort of the work-play balance that you guys alluded to earlier is crucial. Um, pursuing other passions outside work is essential. Um, it's great to be passionate about advertising, but if that's the only thing you're passionate about, you're probably pretty one-dimensional. Um, so however idiosyncratic such things may seem, like a favorite pen or starting, you know, work uh, in a certain, um, with, a, with a glass of kombucha or <laughs> uh, in a beanbag chair or whatever, however you choose to begin, it's just this idea that much of the creative process isn't the process at all, but it's finding and keeping those habits that support it. Right. Um, it's sort of the creature comforts that fuel the process. Yeah. Um, and then finally, we, we looked at emotion because emotion was something that came up um, over and over again in our analysis. And, you know, if we set aside fear and frustration, because that, those were universal aspects of the process, pretty much everybody showed us some form of fear or frustration in their account. But we found very common parts of the creative process to also be optimism, um, determination, joy, and you better find joy in what you do. Because <laughs> it's a long life, right? Yep, yep. And, um, and also humility. I, I think as accomplished as many of the people that we talked to are, they were still super humble. Mm. And um, none of them were jerks about being <laughs> successful. And I think part of it is because they they don't know when that gravy train might end, right? Yeah. They they, um, they sort of live in that moment and and enjoy the journey, you know, as hackneyed as that phrase is. But um, th the takeaway with emotion, I think, is that the good definitely outweighs the bad. Mm -hmm. And it helps us understand how creative people sustain their work through obstacles and setbacks. Mm -hmm. Because the passion for what you do gets you through a terrible day or a terrible week. Um, and when you have those creative victories and come up with great ideas, it sort of counterbalances all that. So those were the dimensions that we discussed in the book and just a brief explanation. Yeah, I, I know you felt like you just did a monologue, but I could literally listen to you mm -hmm. talk about that like, all day long. Well, good, because it's thought, lengthy. So. I thought that it was so interesting, and so that's why I really wanted to hear it from your perspective as having been, you know, an author of it to, to yeah. kind of walk through that and explain it more. And I was actually laughing to myself when you talked about how everyone was so humble and, and that you didn't come across any jerks that it, it made me think about, I don't remember who, I don't remember who it was, but it made me think about how one of the 
illustrations that you got, you got returned to you all torn up into pieces and you were like, oh wow, we like pissed somebody off. But then you didn't realize once you put it back together that that was actually their illustration. So that's what I was thinking of whenever you said that one. (laughs) Yeah, the the torn paper actually represented breaking an idea apart. Yeah. And and sort of appreciating all the pieces. And, And But you're right, the minute that that first piece of paper fell out of that envelope, we thought we had an enemy. So <laughs> it turned out fine. It was, it was symbolic. So. That's funny. We hope you enjoyed part one of our conversation with Dr. Griffin and that you hone in on your own creative process. In part two, we talk about how branding is a fundamental tool that utilities have at their disposal to communicate to customers and the community about the value of water. Never miss out on future episodes by signing up for the Water Nerd newsletter found at the h2duo.com forward slash newsletter. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at the underscore h2duo. We share all of our new episodes there as well as in the newsletter. So whether we come across your feed or in your inbox, be sure to share episodes with your friends, family, colleagues, fellow water nerds. Help us spread the word. We hope you learned something new today, got a little inspired, or did something that brought you one step closer to your goal. Until next time, remember what one of our favorite quotes says. Those who tell the stories rule the world.